the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and today I am going to read part two of the 1916 essay, Working Woman and Mother, by Alexandra Kollontai. At the end of the last episode, I talked a little bit about Kollontai's really interesting rhetorical strategy in this pamphlet. It was a pamphlet obviously written to appeal to working literate women in the major cities in Russia in 1916. This would have been obviously before the revolution, uh, before the abdication of the Russian Tsar, but during World War One, when there were many people, many women in particular, working in factories and jobs while the men were off away at the front. And in the last installment, the first part of this essay, she sets up a kind of interesting rhetorical strategy of talking about four women who are all named Maria. Masha is the diminutive of Maria, and one of them is a lady. She's the wife of a factory owner. One is a maid, one is a laundress, and one is a dye worker. And obviously the maid, the girl who gets pregnant from the factory owner who is not having sex with his wife because she's pregnant and too fragile, uh, commits suicide in the last episode because she doesn't have anywhere to go with her baby. And so here in the second part of the essay, Kolontide does this really interesting thing in that she begins to kind of talk about the different ways in which working class women experience motherhood versus the bourgeois women. And she kind of leads the reader in to considering some of the solutions that socialism and communism in Russia would provide. So this is part two of Working Woman and Mother from 1916. The Cross of Motherhood. For Masha the Lady, motherhood is a joyful occasion. In a bright, tidy nursery, the factory owner's heir grows up under the eye of various nannies and the supervision of a doctor. If Masha the Lady has too little milk of her own or does not want to spoil her figure, a wet nurse can be found. Masha the lady amuses herself with the baby and then goes out visiting, goes shopping or to the theater or to a ball. There is someone at hand to look after the baby. Motherhood is amusing. It is entertainment for Masha the lady. For the other Mashas, the working women, the dyers, weavers, laundresses, and the other hundreds of thousands of working class women, Motherhood is a cross. The factory siren calls the women to work, but her child is fretting and crying. How can she leave it? Who will look after it? She pours the milk into a bottle and gives the child to the old woman next door or leaves her young daughter in charge. She goes off to work, but she never stops worrying about the child. The little girl, well-intentioned but ignorant, might try feeding her brother porridge or bits of bread. Masha, the lady's baby, looks better every day. Like white sugar or a firm rosy apple, so strong and healthy. The children of the factory worker, the laundress, and the craft worker grows thinner with every day. At nights, the baby curls up small and cries. 
The doctor comes and scolds the mother for not breastfeeding the child or for not feeding it properly. And you call yourself a mother. Now you have only yourself to blame if the baby dies. The hundreds and thousands of working mothers do not try to explain themselves. They stand with bent heads, furtively wiping away the tears. Could they tell the doctor of the difficulties they face? Would he believe them? Would he understand? They die like flies. Children are dying. The children of working men and women die like flies. One million graves, one million sorrowing mothers. But whose children die? When death goes harvesting spring flowers, whose children fall to the scythe? As one would imagine, death gathers the poorest harvest among the wealthy families where the children live in warmth and comfort and are suckled on the milk of their mother or wet nurse. In the families of royalty, only six or seven of every hundred newborn children die. In the workers' families, from 30 to 45 die. In all countries where the capitalists control the economy and the workers sell their labor power and live in poverty, the percentage of babies to die in early childhood is very high. In Russia, the figures are higher than anywhere else. Here are the comparative figures for the number of children that survive early childhood. In Norway, 93%. Switzerland, 89%. England, 88%. Finland, 88%. France, 86%. Austria, 80%. Germany, 80%. Russia, 72%. But there are several provinces in Russia, especially those with many factories, where 54% of children die at birth. In the areas of the big cities where the rich live, child mortality is only 8 or 9 percent. In working class areas, the figure is 30 or 31 percent. Why do the children of the proletariat die in such numbers? To grow healthy and strong, a young child needs fresh air, warmth, sun, cleanliness, and careful attention. It needs to be breastfed. Its mother's milk is its natural food and will help it grow and grow strong. And how many children of working class families have all the things we have listed? Death makes a firm place for itself in the homes of working class families because such families are poor. Their homes are overcrowded and damp and the sunlight does not reach the basement because where there are too many people, it is usually dirty. And because the working class mother does not have the opportunity to care for her children properly. Science has established that artificial feeding is the worst enemy of the child. Five times more children fed on cow's milk and 15 times more children fed with other foods die than those who are breastfed. But how is the woman who works outside the home, at the factory, or in a workshop to breastfeed her child? She is lucky if the money stretches to buying cow's milk. That does not happen all the time. And what sort of milk do the tradesmen sell to working mothers anyway? Chalk mixed with water. Consequently, 60% of the babies that die, die from diseases of the stomach. Many others die from what the doctors like to call the inability to live. The mother, worn out by her hard physical labor, gives birth prematurely, or the child is poisoned by the factory fumes while still in the womb. How can the woman of the working class possibly fulfill her maternal obligations? Work and maternity.
There was a time, not so long ago, a time that our grandmothers remember, when women were only involved in work at home, in housework or domestic crafts. The women of the non-property-owning classes were not idle, of course. The work around the house was hard. They had to cook, sew, wash, weave, keep the linen white, and work in the kitchen garden and in the fields. But this work did not tear the women away from the cradle. There were no factory walls separating her from her children. However poor the woman was, her child was in her arms. Times have changed. Factories have been set up. Workshops have been opened. Poverty has driven women out of the house. The factory has pulled them in with its iron claws. When the factory gates slam behind her, a woman has to say farewell to maternity, for the factory has no mercy on the pregnant woman or the young mother. When a woman works day in and day out over a sewing machine, she develops diseases of the ovaries. When she works at a weaving or spinning factory, a rubber or china works, or a lead or chemical plant, she and her baby are in danger of being poisoned by noxious fumes and by contact with harmful substances. When a woman works with lead or mercury, she becomes infertile or her children are stillborn. When she works at a cigarette or tobacco factory, the nicotine in her milk may poison her child. Pregnant women can also maim or kill their children by carrying heavy loads, standing for long hours at a bench or counter, or hurrying up and down stairs at the whim of the lady of the house. There is no dangerous and harmful work from which working women are barred. There is no type of industry which does not employ pregnant women or nursing mothers. Given the conditions in which working women live, their work in production is the grave of maternity. So just an aside here, I think it's interesting to point out that Kolontai has sort of crafted a narrative about the conditions under which working class women deal with motherhood, pregnancy, maternity, and the early childcare and breastfeeding of their children. Now, she's not 100% right about all the things that she says that these, uh, I, I don't actually think that certain kinds of work gives you diseases of the ovaries, although maybe it did in Russia in 1916. But I think what she's trying to do is to establish that there's a problem, a problem that many women reading this pamphlet would have recognized as a a truly grim situation for many women who get pregnant and are still required to work in a factory or work as a housemaid. And so in this next section, she says, she starts it under the subtitle, Is There a Solution to the Problem? And here's where she sort of gets her socialist um, vibe on and she sort of lays out the kinds of things that a socialist society could do. And and again, I think it's really important to point out this is 1916. The workers uh, revolution, the worker first worker state is still a good year into the future. Kolontai has no idea that she's going to be the first commissar of social welfare and will be actually responsible for dealing with the problems of pregnant women and working mothers. So this is the next section. Is there a solution to the problem? If children are to be stillborn, 
born crippled or born to die like flies, is there any point in the working woman becoming pregnant? Are all the trials of childbirth worthwhile if the working woman has to abandon her children to the winds of chance when they are still so tiny? However much she wants to bring her child up properly, she does not have the time to look after it and care for it. Since this is the case, is it not simply better to avoid maternity? Many working women are beginning to think twice about having children. They have not the strength to bear the cross. Is there a solution to this problem? Do working women have to deprive themselves of the last joy that has left them in life? Life has hurt her. Poverty gives her no peace and the factory drains her strength. Does this mean that the working woman must give up the rights to the joys of having children? Give up without a fight? Without trying to win the right nature has given every living creature and every dumb animal? Is there an alternative? Of course there is. But not every working woman is yet aware of it. What is the alternative? Imagine a society, a people, a community, where there are no longer Mashenka ladies and Mashenka laundresses, where there are no parasites and no hired workers, where all people do the same amount of work and society in return looks after them and helps them in life. Just as now the Mashenka ladies are taken care of by their relatives, those who need more attention, the woman and children, will be taken care of by society, which is like one large friendly family. When Mashenka, who is now neither a lady nor a servant, but simply a citizen, becomes pregnant, she does not have to worry about what will happen to her and her child. Society, that big happy family, will look after everything. A special home with a garden and flowers will be ready to welcome her. It will be so designed that every pregnant woman who has just given birth can live there joyfully in health and comfort. The doctors in this society family are concerned not just about preserving the health of the mother and child, but about relieving the woman of the pain of childbirth. Science is making progress in this field and a doctor can help here. When the child is strong enough, the mother returns to her normal life and takes up again the work that she does for the benefit of the large family society. She does not have to worry about her child. Society is there to help her. Children will grow up in the kindergarten, the children's colony, the creche, and the school under the care of experienced nurses. When the mother wants to be with her children, she only has to say the word. And when she has no time, she knows they are in good hands. Maternity is no longer a cross. Only its joyful aspects remain. Only the great happiness of being a mother, which at the moment only the Mashenka ladies enjoy. But such a society surely is only to be found in fairy tales. Could such a society ever exist? The science of economics and the history of society and the state show that such society must and will come into being. However hard the rich capitalists, factory owners, landowners, and men of property fight, the fairy tale will come true. The working class all over the world is fighting to make this dream come true. And although society is as yet far from being one happy family, 
although there are still many struggles and sacrifices ahead, it is at the same time true that the working class in other countries has made great gains. Working men and women are trying to lighten the cross of motherhood by getting laws passed by taking other measures. How can the law help? The first thing that can be done and the first thing that working men and women are doing in every country is to see that the law defends the working mother. Since poverty and insecurity are forcing women to take up work, and since the number of women out working is increasing every year, the very least that can be done is to make sure that hired labor does not become the grave of maternity. The law must intervene to help women to combine work and maternity. Men and women workers everywhere are demanding a complete ban on night work, for women and young children, an eight-hour day for all workers, and a ban on the employment of children under 16 years of age. They are demanding that young girls and boys over 16 years of age be allowed to work only half the day. This is important, especially from the point of view of the future mother, since between the years of 16 and 18, the girl is growing and developing into a woman. If her strength is undermined during these years, her chance of healthy motherhood are lost forever. The law should state categorically that working conditions and the whole work situation must not threaten a woman's health. Harmful methods of production should be replaced by safe methods or completely done away with. Heavy work with weights or foot-propelled machines, etc. should be mechanized. Work rooms should be kept clean and there should be no extremes of temperature. Toilets, washrooms, and dining rooms should be provided, etc. These demands can be won. They have already been encountered in the model factories, but the factory owners do not usually like to fork out the money. All adjustments and improvements are expensive, and human life is so cheap. A law to the effect that women should sit wherever possible is very important. It is also important that substantial and not merely nominal fines are levied against factory owners who infringe the law. The law of seeing that the law is carried out should be entrusted not only to factory inspectors, but also to representatives elected by the workers. All right, so I'm already at 18 minutes, and I think what I'll do is finish this essay in the very next episode, where she specifically talks about maternity protection and maternity insurance. You know, here is where Colin Tai often gets criticized in her essentialization of motherhood and her pretty implicit and explicit pronatalism. So a lot of liberal feminists in particular do not, do not like laws that protect working women specifically that are working mothers because they believe that it creates an inequality between men and women that operates to the detriment of women. Because if employers think that they're going to have to give a maternity leave or they think that they can't allow women to work night shifts or whatever, then that gives women a disadvantage on the labor market. But that's only true, of course, in a capitalist economy. And of course, it's very important to realize that the dream, the fairy tale that Kolontai is talking about here is a society where the means of production are no longer privately owned. She's talking about a fairy tale where the workers collectively own these means of production 
And because of that, sort of special allowances can be made to protect working mothers. I know this is a very controversial issue. I think it bears a worth, uh, it's worth a lot of discussion and it bears a careful consideration. But it's very clear that Colin Ty, as she was writing in 1916, and she was looking out at the trials and tribulations of working women who had small children or who fell pregnant, they wanted to be mothers. Many of them expressed the desire to be mothers, but they did not have the ability to do so under the exploitative working conditions of Tsarist Russia at the time. So I will conclude this essay with Kolontai's specific policy recommendations in part three. But for now, and as always, thank you so much for listening and keep up the good fight. 